You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about intellectual disability and genetics. Joining me, I have two guests. First, Dr. Elena Wong, a primary care pediatrician, associate professor of pediatrics, and director of quality improvement in the CHOP Care Network. Welcome, Dr. Wong. Thank you, Katie. And next, I have Dr. Hannah Alharbi, who is a pediatric geneticist and assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Tabuk in Saudi Arabia. Welcome, Dr. Alharbi. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Well, I'm excited to chat with both of you because you co-authored a new CHOP clinical pathway on the diagnostic evaluation of developmental delay and intellectual disability, and that's what inspired this podcast. So I think before we start talking about the content of this pathway, I'm wondering if you can tell us why it was important for you to create this pathway, because I think some of us might not know that much about this topic, and it's helpful to kind of have some framework for where this is all coming from. So during my fellowship in biochemical genetics at Chubb, I have seen some patients who presented late to our clinic, and as a result, they had a delayed diagnosis. So as a team, we wanted to study the current status in primary care clinics since they are the frontline physicians. During this work, we have identified some gaps that we can work on such as a delay in the referral to specialists, and also identified some knowledge defects regarding the diagnostic evaluation guidelines of children with intellectual disability and developmental delay. So our goal of this work is to standardize the diagnostic evaluation of these children in a primary care setting, and to provide the physicians with the supportive tools they need to initiate the workup their clinics. This would help in establishing the diagnosis early during the course of the disease. I love that this came out of you seeing a need from your specialty clinic and then partnering with primary care to see what their needs were. Mm -hmm. So in talking about this pathway, let's clarify who it's for. Who's using a pathway for intellectual disability in terms of the patient population? So how are we defining global developmental delay and intellectual disability here? So we use the term intellectual disability for children who are older than five years of age and have deficits in intellectual intellectual and adaptive functioning skills that were confirmed by clinical assessment and standardized testing. For younger uh, children, we use the term global developmental delay to describe significant delay in two or more domains, including cross, fine motor, speech, or social. Global developmental delay is thought also to be a predictor to intellectual disability. And I think a lot of primary care pediatricians might recognize global developmental delay and or intellectual disability in their patients, but might not recognize the importance of establishing a genetic diagnosis in these patients. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the pathway is helping guide clinicians in doing. So why is this important? Mm -hmm. So there are many benefits of establishing the underlying diagnosis in these children in particular for treatable condition. This will enable the physician to start 
targeted therapy early to halt the progression of disease, and that would lead to improve the long-term outcome. Knowing the diagnosis will also clarify the etiology and will avoid unnecessary and probably invasive testing, such as muscle biopsy. Also, it will allow starting early surveillance to prevent secondary complications or discontinue unneeded surveillance. And it will help us to counsel the family and assist them for their in their future planning early. That's great. And I know there are published guidelines already for pediatricians on this topic, which I know you used in informing your pathway development. But can you summarize a little bit about what some of those guidelines are and what the AAP already says about this topic? I'm happy to take that question, Katie. Both the AAP and our neighbors in the Canadian Pediatric Society have published beautiful guidelines on this specific issue. They both do agree that we as general pediatricians often don't recognize the evidence that supports various genetic tests, which we'll talk about in more detail in just a second, and also metabolic tests. There are some folks who are still debating things like exome sequencing and brain MRI. So as we look at various guidelines, we try to focus on what they did agree on. And Hannah has, I think, a little more information mm-hmm. about some of the specialty colleges mm-hmm. and academies. So also the, the American College of Medical Genetics, the ACMG, and the American Academy of Neurology recommend um, chromosomal microarray and the um, diagnostic evaluation if the history and physical exam were not suggestive of a specific disorder. Recently, the American College of Medical Genetics recommends whole exome or genome sequencing also very early in the process as second-tier testing if the chromosomal microarray is not diagnostic or even it can be considered as first-tier. This is because the higher diagnostically yield associated with such tests, especially for patients uh, with comorbidities. And so that's why we developed the clinical pathway and we involve the genetic workup and metabolic workup um, early in the evaluation process. And that's why I love the clinical pathways, because you take all of those published guidelines that might be hard for us to find in the moment with a patient and synthesize them and put them into one convenient place for us. One of my favorite parts of your pathway is the section on testing recommendations for common recognizable syndromes. It's a nice little medical school refresher all in one place, really great for anyone who's studying for their board exams right now. But in practice, the reason that I like this is that if I have a strong suspicion for one of these syndromes, you give the next steps in the guidelines that are actionable in primary Mm -hmm. care. So for example, I learned if suspicious for tuber sclerosis, I should refer to neurogenetics. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this really streamlines the care for some of these common syndromes. And then you offer this tiered approach, as you mentioned, to labs if a common syndrome is not recognizable. So let's start with just what is the first tier in this algorithm? So the first tier, as you said, it's recommended if the initial evaluation is not specific for or is not suggestive for a specific disorder. The first tier includes chromosomal microarray and fragile X testing. And that what is recommended by the AAP and the Canadian Pediatric Society in evaluation of these children. The reported diagnostic yield of the chromosome microarray um, could reach up to 20%. Mm-hmm. Katie, as a primary care pediatrician, I think these first tier tests that Anna just described are not unfamiliar, but we still don't order them very often. Right. We hope this pathway will help primary care providers recognize when to order these tests and just to feel more confident about doing so. 
Definitely. I think that's so important. And there are some tests on this pathway that we are familiar with. So I love that you included some of the non-genetic test recommendations here, like thyroid, ferritin, B12, and lead, as these are such common primary care labs that we order. But another thing that's really common for us is the newborn screening. Obviously, we check that on all of our newborns. Mm -hmm. But what should we consider if a patient is born outside of the U.S. and might never have had a newborn screen done? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for children who were born outside the U.S. or never had newborn screening, we recommend more comprehensive metabolic workup to be done early in the um, evaluation process. That includes urine, glycose, aminoglycans. Uh, this is to screen for mucobilisaccharidosis. Uh, we know that uh, mucobilisaccharidosis type 1 and or type 2 are now included in newborn screen panels for many states. We are also recommending biotinidase enzyme activity test, especially if there is associated visual or hearing impairment or skin manifestations. Biotinidase deficiency is a treatable condition mm-hmm. with biotin supplement, and good outcome could be achieved if diagnosed and managed early. I also want to add that pediatricians often rely on a negative newborn screen result to rule out metabolic disorders. Mm-hmm. However, it's important to know that Newborn screening panels are not complete. They involve some metabolic disorders, mm-hmm. but not all metabolic disorders. And also panels are different from one country to another. And also they are different from one state to another. Mm-hmm. Some countries, they don't have a national newborn screening programs. Other, they may screen for only um, three disorders. So having a newborn screen Normally, newborn skin result does not mean that a child does not have metabolic disorder. Yeah, such an important point. It's great when we have a normal newborn screening, but it does not exclude all conditions. So keep that clinical suspicion up if you do see something and look for the newborn screen, especially again in patients who might not have been born in the United States. And if they didn't have that done, do the testing that Dr. Harvey just mentioned. Now, Dr. Wong, you just mentioned something, too, that historically primary care providers might not be as familiar with some of this genetic testing, and they might have been hesitant to order it due to some trouble navigating insurance reimbursement. So how is this pathway helping primary care clinicians at CHOP and otherwise navigate financial clearance and authorization for this testing? Absolutely, Katie. Many of us remember when microarrays were not that common, super expensive, and not always covered by insurance. And some of us have been burned before with patients getting a big bill. So luckily, the cost of testing has decreased over the years, partially because, as we've discussed already, there are national and international evidence-based guidelines to explain that this testing is cost-effective and high-yield. So as a result, most Medicaid companies are starting to cover those first-tier tests, the microarray and fragile X testing, as long as there's a clinical indication. For families on commercial or private insurance, prior authorization might be necessary to ensure coverage. In our institution, as part of this pathway bill, we partnered with our financial clearance team. They currently were supporting our genetics and metabolism specialists and are already experts on navigating these potentially complicated processes with insurance companies. In this discussion, they've generously agreed to extend their services to include our primary care providers when they order these tests. Our pathway now details the necessary steps to obtain financial clearance, and we're building resources and templated letters into our electronic health record as well. 
I love that you've helped build that infrastructure and the pathway does help provide inspiration for other institutions who might want to do the same. On that note, the pathway here is really a team sport. And for those who are listening who want to use this pathway at their institution and perhaps set up a similar system for integrating financial clearance and genetic counseling with primary care, what recommendations do you have? As you know, I love this question, Katie. One of the many reasons that I do quality improvement is that it brings together really important stakeholders across silos and across roles. So for example, in this initiative, our team included colleagues from neurology, genetics and metabolism, developmental pediatrics, our genetic counselors, our financial clearance team, informaticists, and of course, primary care. Together, we all spent many months digging into this issue, understanding the barriers and exploring drivers for success. And another key step was to obtain and validate data to really determine how we were doing at baseline with genetic and metabolic testing for kids in primary care with suspected intellectual disability or developmental delay. Many of you know that data is extremely important in QI work and although often one of the harder steps Mm-hmm. Um, so finally, then we were able to move forward with a pathway, some clinical decision support to help clinicians, and some data to be able to determine if we were making progress. So I, I think that overall, the lessons learned are think outside of the box for what you usually do, find other people who have a passion for improving the way that we provide care to patients and then taking time to really delve into the problem before jumping to solutions. That's great. I love that this is something that other institutions could potentially take on because as we mentioned at the start, the whole reason for doing genetic testing in children with intellectual disability is that we can potentially improve patient outcomes and that early diagnosis can be beneficial here. So let's tie this pathway together with a clinical example that will really show people how this can be used. So I'm wondering, what's a common referral that you see from primary care where this pathway could be used to expedite the diagnosis and potentially improve treatment outcomes? So we expect that this pathway will expedite the referrals uh, for patients with chromosomal abnormalities as they are considered common causes of intellectual disability and developmental delay. Uh, One example is 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome, but we also aim from this work to make the primary care physicians aware of indications of referral to specialists early in the evaluation process and to consider genetic and metabolic disorders when they are seeing these patients. Treatable metabolic disorders could be less common than chromosomal abnormalities or other genetic conditions, but important to identify these conditions early because As we said that identifying these disorders early plays a major role in the improving the outcome and prevent complications. Exactly, Hannah. And as you've been listening to Hannah talk, you can tell some of these terms roll off her tongue more easily than they (laughs) might for us in primary care, where we're like, what did you say again? And what was that? (laughs) Um, And so I think that whenever we work together across specialties, primary care, et cetera, It's being able to have in a pathway kind of a a mini Hannah on your side to say, okay, I have this patient in front of me. What should I be thinking? What should I order? What are you thinking as a specialist so that when I refer them to you, we've expedited some of the processes that you would have wished that we had done? 
And I think then even pulling in, again, those uh, financial clearance experts and saying, what can we do to make your job better? What can you do to make our job easier? And really, this is is just a great example of collaborating to provide the right care to the right patients at the right time. Very well said. Well, thank you both so much for your work on this pathway and for everyone else who was involved. I know this was a, a great team effort. And folks can search online for the intellectual disability pathway, but also we will link to that on our website, which is www.chop.edu slash PCP podcast. Thank you both so much for joining me today and for teaching us a little bit more about this very important topic. Thank you so much, Katie. This is really a wonderful opportunity to help people learn a little bit more about this pathway. Yeah, thank you, Katie, so much for organizing this. And we hope that people will benefit from this pathway and we they will able to use it in their primary care clinics. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.